0: If you're visiting St. Phillips, my name's Kieran Carr, I'm on the staff here, and it's great that you can join with us. We're probably about 10 weeks or so into our series, uh, looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. Why don't we pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are with us, Lord, uh, by your Spirit. Uh, We pray that you would teach us through your Word. Uh, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, uh, Lord, to see you, to hear from you what it is that you're saying to us. Thank you for the freedom that comes from knowing you and what you've done for us, Lord. And please teach us and show us your ways. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's always good to have a recap of kind of the context of the letter that we're looking at. And remember, the background to Galatians is that um, Paul, in his first missionary journey um, after meeting Christ himself, uh, wanted to share that good news across the world. And so he preached the gospel in the region of Galatia and people responded. They came to faith and there were these churches in Galatia. And, um, and then he left, he moved on, if I'm not mistaken, Acts 13, 14. He was there for three years and then he uh, moved on. And uh, after he left, some other false teachers came in and they started teaching a, a different message uh, Paul called it a gospel, which is actually no gospel uh, at all because it wasn't good news, which is what the gospel means. It, w- it was bad news. Uh, and so uh, the gospel that he had preached and that they had responded to was uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and then you will be saved. And then as a result of that, you will begin to live a good and godly life. As a result of that faith and being saved, you will um, obey the law, you will follow uh, the Ten Commandments, believe then saved, then obey. Uh, then these uh, false teachers, after Paul left, they came in. And they tweaked it, which seemingly just a tiny bit, but it was actually made all the difference in the world. And they said, yeah, Jesus is good. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he died. We believe that he rose again. Believing in Jesus is good. But you need to, in order to be saved, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. You need to uphold the Mosaic law. You see in Acts 15, they said, it's not unless you are circumcised that you can be saved. And so they tweaked it around. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus, then obey, and then you will be saved saved. Um, now, all this talk that we've had about circumcision probably seems um, quite um, alienating and weird, at least for half of you, uh, and, uh, and and maybe makes even the other half of us squirm. But um, but but uh, the point is worth reiterating that um, it, it wasn't. It doesn't matter so much um, what they were adding to the gospel, but that they were adding to the gospel. It doesn't matter what they were adding as a requirement in order for you to be saved. It just matters that they were adding a requirement in order to be saved. In other words, they could have been saying that in order to be saved, you need to be able to juggle five flamethrowers on a unicycle for more than two minutes. That's kind of irrelevant. It's the fact that they were adding requirements and saying, believe, yes, obey, and then saved. And so Paul's message was believe and receive, whereas the false teacher's message was basically achieve and achieve. You had to... Do something in order to be brought into fellowship with God. You see, the gospel is all about what Christ has achieved on our behalf. He lived a perfect life that no one else could live. And he died the sacrificial death to turn away God's wrath for our rebellion against him on the cross. And it's in him. And so we believe what he's achieved on our behalf. And then we are saved. It was believe and receive. But the false teachers were saying, Sure, believe, but you need to add to that obedience and then you will be saved and only then will you be accepted. And so that's the issue that's at stake in Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. But it raises an important question and Paul deals with it as well in Romans. And the the question is this, if I don't have to do anything to be saved, then why on earth do I bother living a good life? If I don't have to do anything to be saved, why on earth do I bother with the Ten Commandments or obedience or following God? Uh, Tim Keller uses this illustration. He talks about his two eldest sons when they were um, uh, in Year 12, uh, finishing Year 11 and Year 12, and they were needing to make their applications to university um, at the end of Term 1, apparently, um, of Year 12 for them. Now, they busted their guts and they worked really hard at the end of Year 11, first term in... um, in year twelve, um, and uh, so that they could get their university preferences, and then as soon as they found out that they got into the university that they wanted, guess what happened? Their grades plummeted, and Tim was like, "Why are you getting?" He looked at their results for the rest of year twelve after term one, and he's like, "Why are you getting such terrible results?" And they were like, "Well, the uni doesn't care about those marks. I'm already in. I'm already accepted." Uh, In other words, if I've already been accepted into the university that I want to be in, why do I need to bother putting in any effort for the rest of the year? And that's exactly the question that the gospel raises. If you're accepted by God and completely forgiven by grace alone through faith and not by works, or at least not by your works, but through the finished work of Christ, then why do I need to bother Obeying God and following God and trying to live a good and godly life. See, that's the question that Paul is answering partly in our passage today in Galatians chapter 5. And what I want you to see is that it's a really important question. But not only that, what I hope I'll show you through this passage is that the grace of God is a much greater incentive. It's a much greater motivation and much more powerful push to live a godly life and an obedient life than what the false teachers were trying to motivate with. And, and what I want you to see is that this is really important. The key verse, the memory verse today, is Galatians 5 verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says this. You can have a look at it, Galatians 5 verse 6. He says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working itself through love. That's where the power is. That's where the motivation is. That's where the energy comes from. Faith working itself through love. That's the motivation and the power for a godly life. And and before we get into this, I want I want you to see that this this whole question is kind of like a bit like the Holy Grail of of, of really what humanity is is searching for. Like like the intelligentsia, the the politicians, the academics, the courts, the police, they're all actually trying to ask this question is how can you actually motivate people to do the right thing? You think about our prison system if they could crack that one, our police if they could crack that one, our social welfare system if they could crack, our courts, our politicians, if they could crack that question of how can you actually motivate people to love and to obedience, to keep the Ten Commandments? That's a really big question. Um, Actually, it's a question that Beatrice Webb, a woman called Beatrice Webb in Britain, dedicated her whole life to. Uh, Beatrice Webb and her uh, husband, uh, Sydney, uh, they lived uh, at the turn of the 20th century, late 19th century Britain, and they're credited as being the architects of the social welfare system in Britain. Uh, Beatrice Webb, she gave her whole life to the social welfare system. And and she wrote in her diary... um, She was part of the intelligentsia and the elite of of, um, Britain at the time. And towards the end of her life, she wrote an essay. And here's what she said. She said, somewhere in my diary, 1890 perhaps, I wrote this. I've staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. I've staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. That's what she wrote. But now, 35 years later, I realise how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in man and how little we can change these. For example, the greed of wealth and power. We must continually be asking for better things from our own and from other persons, from human nature. But shall we get any response... Without a response, how can we shift social institutions from off the basis of brutal struggle for existence and power and onto the principle of fellowship? Then she says this, no amount of knowledge or science will be of any avail unless we can curb these evil impulses and set free, there's the language of Galatians, and set free ourselves for good. In other words, after a life dedicated to uh, the essential goodness of human nature and to the social welfare system, Beatrice Webb came finally to the conclusion that as a human race, we are utterly powerless to change the evil of the human heart. That was her conclusion after 35 years of giving herself to that cause. Uh, And, you know, it reminds me, actually, of an interview that I was listening to uh, recently reflecting on on the war in Ukraine um, uh, with a guy called Professor John Gray. Uh, He's an English political philosopher and author, and they were talking about the history of ideas and they were reflecting on the war in Ukraine, and and he was talking about the historical atrocities of Russia uh, that that preceded uh, the Ukraine war, and, and he was basically saying that the evil of the Russian Civil War, which was early 20th century, is so overwhelming and so depressing and so utterly meaningless that the majority of sexual, secular historians just won't look at it because they can't bear it. This is what he's he's saying the evil of, of Russia in the early 20th century. And, and he talks about a friend of his, was really interesting, um, a military historian who's re- written a book about um, Russia in the early 20th century. And um, from 7.30 this morning, Barb actually said, I'm actually reading the book and, and I can only cope with like a few pages at a time because of how immensely depressing it is. And he talks about, um, th- this guy who's being interviewed talks about this book on the Russian Civil War and he says there were millions of people killed extraordinary cruelty enormous loss of life in human civilization and then a bolshevik government secures its dictatorship over the country including Ukraine and what people wanted to hope for was that at least there'd be some element of order but what they got was terror and then he goes on if you start looking at all that evil at the end of this tremendous catalog of human sorrow then what you get is Putin, all for nothing, all for nothing. These are his words. That's an extraordinarily challenging lesson for the optimistic, secular, rational mind to absorb. And basically, they can't. So what they do is don't study it. That's the the conclusion of Professor John Gray, political philosopher and author. And then he says this, what I'm saying is that the ignorance of history is partly willful. Young people don't want to hear it and the teachers don't want to teach it either because, he says "in in wonderfully English terms, because it's rather dispiriting. This is the problem of evil. And this is the problem of evil that the Lord Jesus came to solve. You see, the point that I'm trying to make is that this is a problem that we're all trying to solve. Medicine, technology, education, politics. This is the, this is the, this is the holy grail. But Beatrice Webb and Professor John Gray seem to have come to the conclusion after looking at the problem for so long that it's beyond us. And, of course, that's the message of Galatians. Because what does, how does Paul start his letter in Galatians chapter 1, verses 4, 3, 4, and 5? Or 4 to 6? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to set us free from this present evil age. In other words, the problem comes from our grace and peace comes from our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, And they came to set us free from this present evil age. And how did he do it? By giving, Jesus did it by giving himself for our sins, to set us free. And I want you to note in our reading today the the language of freedom. Did you pick it up in verse 1? For freedom Christ has set us free. It's there twice. Then again in verse 13. So today we're talking about gospel freedom. Freedom, Jesus setting us free and destroying evil at the root, which is in our hearts. And I just want you to notice that in our liturgy, there's a lot of things that we say that we don't necessarily completely understand. But really what we're unpacking today is at the bottom of page three during communion, where we say he showed us how to love you. This is Jesus. And we say he set us free to love and serve one another. Well, a good question to ask is, what did he set us free from? He set us free to love and serve one another. That's what we say in our liturgy at this time. Well, I hope you'll see as we look through the passage today that the thing that he set us free from is ourselves, from self. That's what he set us free from. And I want you to hopefully come to that conclusion as we look at the passage today. Because the freedom that he's talking about is a freedom that destroys evil at its heart, and that evil is our selfishness, our self-dependence, and our pride. You see, the difference between Paul and these false teachers was not that Paul, Paul wasn't saying, OK, now that you're saved, you can go and do whatever you want. Just forget about the Ten Commandments. You know, it's God's job to forgive, so it's your job to sin. Just, just go for it. That's not what he was saying. And I want you to see that in verse 7. He says, you're obeying the truth. Can you see that in verse 7? They were obeying the truth, obedient. Paul was preaching obedience still. And so if the false teachers were saying you have to keep God's law, because remember, that's what the false teachers were saying. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law. And, um, and Paul was, in a sense, he was also saying, yes, you have to obey. Then I want to ask the question, what's the difference? If the false teachers were saying you have to obey God's law, and if Paul is saying you have to obey God's law, then what's the difference between the two? And, and I want I want to show you that the difference is the motivation. The difference is the reason why. The motivation, the new motivation that the gospel gives, is absolutely crucial and fundamental. Look at verse verse seven. He says, "You were running well. Who prevented you from obeying the truth?" So you can see that after they've accepted the gospel, they're still putting in effort. They're running the race, they're obeying God, they're exerting themselves and they're obeying the truth. So they're still living a life of obedience. But the interesting thing at this point is that he's saying that the false teachers are now preventing them from obeying the truth. Preventing them from obeying the truth? Isn't that what they're trying to do? They're saying you have to keep the law? In order to be saved, you have to be circumcised, you have to fulfill the Mosaic law in order to be saved. How can Paul say that they're preventing, he, they're preventing the Galatians from obeying the truth? Well, I think the easiest way to think about it is uh, that t- to point out that Jesus is the truth, right? And the law is supposed to lead us to Jesus. That's the whole purpose of the law. If you turn back, have a look with me at Galatians 3 verse 24. Um, You see the purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ. He says, therefore the law was our disciplinarian, um, other translations say our schoolmaster, until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. So the law is to bring us to Christ so that we can be justified by him. Maybe an illustration will help. I used to have a recurring nightmare um, where I would find myself, uh, I'd, I'd find myself uh, at school, uh, in my school uniform, but um, I was like 23, and everyone around me in my group, we're just having a chat, is like 17 or 18. I'm in my school uniform, but I'm 23, and, and, and there they are. And, and slowly it would dawn on me that the reason I'm here at 23 and they're like... Seven, I didn't know who they were, they're 17 and 18... Is because for the fourth time, for the fifth time, for the sixth time, I've sat through year 12 and I've failed the final exam, and so I've had to repeat again and again and again. Somebody said to me this morning they've had the same um, nightmare. Um, And you can imagine that once I realize that that I'm here because I've failed the exam, I wake up with a, (gasps) it was a horrible nightmare. Paul is saying this. The purpose of the law is to get you to that point where you finally say, I can't do it. I can't do this on my own. Unless somebody comes and sits the exam for me, I'll be stuck here forever. And of course, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus came to do. That's why in Galatians 4, Paul says Jesus was born under the law and he was born of a woman because he came into the school and he sat the exam and he's the only one who ever got a perfect 10 out of 10 so that the father says to him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, the only one in history who passed the exam and more than that, who actually died in our place to suffer the judgment we deserve for our Rebellion against God so that if we are in Christ and trust in his work, we finally graduate and are set free. Paul is saying in Galatians three twenty six that's the purpose. Uh, verse 24, that's the purpose of the law. I've been set free through Christ and in Christ. And so now for the rest of my life, I'm not working for approval. I'm working from approval. I'm not doing this because I'm afraid um, I won't pass the exam or God won't love me or God won't accept me or bless me. So I'm not sitting this exam to save my skin with, out of fear and trying to save my skin. I'm not being a nice person or a good person or a godly person because I'm afraid I'm not going to graduate or make the cut and because I'm deeply insecure. No, my motivation now for doing good and for being good is not about me. I've been set free. That work has been finished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have a completely new motivation now, and it has nothing to do with fear. Have you heard of Viktor Frankl? Man's search for meaning. He he, he was in a German concentration camp, and he made some grim discoveries himself whilst in a German concentration camp. He found while he was in there as he watched people that um, people who on the outside had been very religious, they'd been very um, upright and they'd been very moral um, when they were outside the concentration camp, when they were inside the concentration camp, they, they became very petty and mean and ruthless and cruel. And he, and he started to ponder, well, why, why is this? And, and the conclusion that he came to was that because was because that at the very bottom, underneath all their religiosity and all of their good deeds and their moral uprightness, they were ultimately motivated by self, by self interest. Um, in other words, it served them very well to be good. It was financially and socially um, acceptable. It, it served them very well to be moral and upright and good when they were outside the concentration camp. And so that's the way they were because it paid in society. But once they were inside the concentration camp, being good and being righteous, it didn't actually help them. It actually would hurt them to be those things. And so they became vicious and mean and cruel because all along the thing that was ultimately motivating them was self, self self-interest. And that's the core of the evil. And the core of the old motivation. But the gospel gives us a new motivation and sets us free. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. He says this, But my friends, why am I still being persecuted if I'm still preaching circumcision? So the point here he's making is is like the guy, whoever's the false teachers are doing, they're saying, oh no, no, Paul agrees with us. He's preaching circumcision uh, as well, like, like we're both preaching the same thing. And Paul's like, whoa, if I'm doing that, then why am I still getting persecuted? That's not my message. But then he says, if I am, if that is what I'm preaching, in that case, the offence of the cross has been removed. What does that mean? The offence of the cross. If he preaches that, that message of believe, obey, and then saved then that removes the offence of the cross. He's obviously saying that what he's preaching is offensive. But what the false teachers are preaching is actually quite nice. It's actually quite flattering. But Paul's saying his message is not. His message is offensive. It's a scandal. It's a stumbling block. It's something that people are offended by. How's that so? Well, think about it. If you tell a group of people... Be nice, be good, behave yourselves, be generous, do unto others as you would have them do unto do, be inclusive. Uh, you, you need to be more outraged about climate change or, or in, injustice or indigenous affairs or, or, or refugees or domestic violence. You, you need to get more outraged about those things and you need to be doing more uh, to, to kind of meet those things. At first, that might feel like um, a lot of pressure, because uh, there's a lot of stuff to do and there's a lot of problems to solve and, and there's only um, me to do it. But at the very bottom, it's actually a very inoffensive and quite affirming message because at the bottom, what that message is saying is you can do it. You've got the power. You, you're a good person. We, we can do this. The problem of evil in this world is, is manageable, we, we can do this. It's within our grasp. If we just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, then, then we can fix this. If, if only we try hard enough, then, then we can do it. We can build this tower on our own and build it to the heavens. And we don't need God. We, we can do it. See, it's actually quite an affirming message. At the end of the day, it's, it's quite affirming. It's much more affirming than what Beatrice Webb came to came to the conclusion of that she'd staked everything on the goodness of human nature. <laughs> it's not the conclusion she came, came to and, and not the conclusion that Professor John Gray came to about human nature and the evil of the human heart. Uh, you see, the, the message that the false teachers were bringing was actually, in the end, very affirming and, and kind of feel good, a feel-good message. But Paul says, <laughs> that's not the message of the cross, You see, the message of the cross is you can't. You can't do it. You can't fix the problem of evil. It's beyond you. If you really want to destroy evil at the very heart, then this is what it'll take. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace from where? From us, right? We can do it. Grace and peace from where? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from this present evil age. In other words, the solution is not in here. The problem is in here. In Luke 11, Jesus says, you are evil. That's a very offensive message. A bloodied and crucified Messiah is what it would take to set us free from the problem of evil. So the solution's not in here, the problem's in here. That means the solution has to be out there. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the offence of the cross, and if you haven't felt the offence of the cross, then you haven't understood the gospel, because that's the message that Paul preached. But that's why in verse six he says, "For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision whether you're really really good and you live you you do it all and you." tick all the boxes of all the right moral things to do, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, if you're a scoundrel and you don't do anything to help the issues of the day and you work for injustice and you're terrible, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You can't do it. The offence of the cross is to say your debt is so infinitely huge that you can forget about ever trying to pay it off. You see, the message of the false teachers is, no, you can do it. Your your debt's only about that much. And if you work really hard, then then you'll you'll be able to do it. No, the, the offense of the cross is a bloodied and crucified Messiah, the perfect innocent one. That's the payment it took to pay off your debt. Remember the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son He's lived a miserable life. He's been wicked and he wants to pay off his debt. He says, Father, make me like one of your hired servants. That's his plan. I'm going to pay off my debt. But the father, in his grace and in his mercy, he runs out to meet him and he cuts him off. It's so important in this thing. If you look at it in Luke 15. The brother, younger brother doesn't get to the, the, the opportunity to get to his plan where he's going to say, make me like one of your hired servants. Because what happens is the father cuts him off and he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Kill the fat and calf and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was lost and now he's found. In other words, he's saying to the son, not in a million years will you be able to pay off that debt, my, my son. The only thing that's going to cancel it is me. You want to become like a hired servant? It's like what Paul says in Galatians. If you want to keep the law, you have to keep the entirety of the law. And your debt is too big. You won't be able to pay. And so the father cuts him off with grace, with forgiveness, with cancelling the debt. That's the freedom of the gospel. Grace and peace to you from God our father. And here's the thing, when you realize that you are so bad that Jesus had to die, you'll be deeply humbled and you'll never be so arrogant as to think that your good performance will be able to somehow get you into blessing with God or that your bad performance will somehow exclude you from the power of God because you've seen how big the debt you are and so you'll never presume to try and pay it off. It's got nothing to do with paying off your debt before God because you could never do it. When you realize how you're so bad that Jesus had to die, you'll be humbled. But also when you realize that you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die, then it changes everything. Whether you're having a good day or a bad day, it doesn't change for one second your status as beloved and forgiven and freed. And when you take that message to heart, the degree to which you take that message to heart, that doesn't make you want to slack off. That makes you want to work all the more. I found the only master who, instead of driving me with whips, actually draws me with his love. You know, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. I worked harder than all of them. Do you know how hard Paul worked as a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin? He was the SAS super Jedi ninja of religion. He worked really hard in Philippians 3. And then in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he said, I worked harder than all the other apostles. But then he says this, yet not I, but the grace of God working through me. His motive had been utterly and completely changed. It was faith working itself through love. Tim Keller uses an illustration. It says, imagine what you'd feel if a person asked to marry you, but you came to realise that they didn't want to marry you if you didn't come with a big inheritance. You wouldn't feel very loved, right? You'd feel... Pretty used at that point. We don't truly feel loved by someone unless they love us for who we are and not for what we can actually give them, what we can bring them. And so this analogy helps us understand the motivation of the gospel, of faith working itself through love. Because when we thought our works saved us, we were actually using God for what we could get from him. We were actually using him. Just imagine if the younger son had become a hired servant and he's working blood, sweat and tears all day as a hired servant. Well, who's he working for ultimately? He's working for himself, trying to pay off his debt. He's not motivated for the father. He's motivated for himself. And so it is for us if we think our works... Can save us and somehow influence God. But the hope of the gospel, as we see the beauty and the freeness of God's grace that He's given to us in Christ, we love Him for who He is and we serve others for who they are. In the gospel, we see that Christ loved us and valued us not for what we bring Him. We don't bring anything for him. We're no proper to him, but he loved us anyway. We've been loved for our own sakes. And to the degree that we see that and feel that by faith, we respond in kind. Jesus said, freely you have received, now freely give. So now we can serve God, not for what he brings us, because we have everything guaranteed, but for who he is and for what is done. And our motivation is genuinely for his glory and for their good. And this brings enormous power, enormous motivation, enormous resources and strength for us to go out into the world, as we say at the end of our services, um, go in peace to love and serve, not ourselves, but to serve the Lord who's so freely given to us. We're completely unshakable. Because of him. And so the memory verse for today is Galatians 5, verse 6. It sums up the message and the freedom of the gospel. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, whether you're amazing and you've done a really good job of reading the Bible and you've got lots of books like I do and you raise your hand higher than anyone else in church and you've done all your devotions this week, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, you've had the most wretched week of the world. You don't raise your hands in worship. In fact, you look grumpy and you've got your arms crossed and and you're falling asleep during church and you haven't done your devotions and you've sinned for the 10,000th time. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working itself through love. That's Galatians five. Verse 6. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom of the gospel and this free gift of your son given to us to set us free, given for our sins, to set us free from this present evil age and that, that, that evil of, of, of just only living for the self. Thank you that you've put your spirit inside of us now, the spirit of your son. Freely we've received, Lord, and help us to take these things to heart and serve and to love and to lay down our lives, not out of a sense of fear, not out of a sense of condemnation, not out of a sense of self-preservation, but genuinely for the glory of God and for the good of others. Please, by your spirit, help us to take these things to heart and may that new motivation overflow and that freedom be felt we pray, even as we work harder than all the others, but not I, yet God's grace working through me. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.